Pesach has three different names. The name that's used in the Torah, the name that is used in davening, and the name that we colloquially use to refer to Pesach. And each of those names represents a specific element of what Pesach is all about. In fact, they actually represent a process. Pesach is a process. It's the process historically of the birth of the Jewish people and the preparation of the Jewish people to receive the Torah, which, of course, is the defining moment of everything about Jewish life. So if we have a look at the three stages through which a student really gets to learn properly, we'll understand that these three stages apply to the birth of the Jewish nation. As these three stages apply to us in our own lives, and these three stages are all represented by the three names of Pesach. There are three different names or descriptions that are used for Pesach. In the actual Torah itself, it's called the Festival of Matzahs. In davening, in addition to the fact that it's called Chagamatzos, obviously because that's from the Torah, we add the expression that it is the season of our redemption, of our freedom. And then in the writings of, let's say, the Gemara, and the way that we refer to it, we call it Chag HaPesach. So you have to say that Pesach obviously has one central theme, and that central theme, as we're about to discover, is made of three major components. And these three major components are reflected in these three names that we use to refer to the holiday. Not only that, not only are there three components, but it's more specific. Because even the order in which things are presented within Torah is in itself Torah, which means it's also a lesson. So that implies automatically that these three things, Chag HaMatzos, Zman Chayrosenu, and Chag HaPesach, and what they represent, they follow in a particular order, and in an order of importance as well. So the Cholor Roish Bo'in and Chag HaMatzos, Sheim HaChag B'Torosh HaBichsav, obviously Chag HaMatzos must be the most important name, because that's the name that is used in Torah itself. Achrov Bo'in and Zman Chayrosenu, Shumit Matbeah, Shetov HaChachom, Eman Shekhnes, Zagdoyla, Lomer, Bitvila, then you have Zman Chayrosenu, which is, the expression, the mold that was created by the sages, the Anshak Nesas Agdola, and that holds a lot of credibility in Torah. And then eventually you get to Chag Pesach, which features later on in the writings of Chazal and in our normal language. So that's the flow, and we need to understand what each of those represents and how they express the theme of Pesach. So what is Pesach? It's the birth of the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation would be defined by Torah, so the whole point of Yetzias Mitzrayim is to get to Har Sinai so we can receive the Torah. And these three names are going to represent that chronology. Very famously, the Navi Yecheskel tells us that Yetzias Mitzrayim is the birth of the Jewish people. So why is it called a time of birth? Not only because this is when the Jewish people became a formal nation. Up until that time, they were officially an extended family. Because if it was just the birth of a nation, well, there are many nations that were born at particular points in history, and that wouldn't be unique to the Jewish people. This is really important information. That the idea of the birth of the Jewish nation means whoever they might have been, that group of people, prior to Yitzhak Mitzrayim, they became a brand new set of people 
after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And that's one of the reasons that we're compared to Gerim, to converts, because Gerim, that when a Ger converts, which is effectively what happened to the Jews, up until that point, they were not formally Jewish people. There wasn't a nation that had been chosen by Hashem. And now there's this brand new Matthias, this brand new entity that's being born at this particular point in time. Not just a nation state, a, a nation of people, but a, a whole new Matthias, a different kind of person that never really existed in history up until this point. What makes that difference? As we well know, the entire purpose and goal of leaving Mitzrayim was in order to receive the Torah. That's why Hashem says to Moshe at the burning bush that the whole point is that you'll serve me on this mountain which was Sinai. As the Pesach says, This is a logical reason why Shavuos doesn't actually have a formal date on the calendar. Instead, Shavuos is calculated as seven weeks count from the second day of Pesach. To show us that Shavuos, which of course is the time of receiving the Torah, is a continuum of what began at the time of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Why did we leave Mitzrayim? In order to get the Torah. What makes us into this Mitzrayim Chadosha? What births the new Jewish nation, which is radically different to any other nation that preceded it, or that follows it? The giving of the Torah. So this is critical information for us. Critical information because so often you hear people use the phrase, the the uh, the expression, "Let my people go," as if Yitzias Mitzrayim was some kind of a liberation movement, and it's not. The purpose of Yitzias Mitzrayim was in order to get the Jewish people to be a nation defined by Torah, something which would be completely unique throughout the whole course of history. That's what we are. Am Shel Torah, a nation of Torah. It's nothing to do with emancipation of slaves. In other words, the, what happened at that point in time is that the essence of every single individual Jew from that moment and on is Torah. That's who we are. That's what courses through our veins. And the fact that they were like a new group of people is not only because they'd been so oppressed and suppressed while living in Egypt. So it's not just that, you know, the Jews were in such a spiritually downtrodden place while they were in Mitzrayim. In fact, they were <laughs> the furthest thing from anybody who should receive the Torah. They were on level 49 out of 50 potential levels of impurity. So that kind of flies in the face of being ready to receive the Torah. So obviously they had to be renewed or revamped or rejuvenated. It's much more than that. It's not that we were not ready for Torah. Torah was not ready to be revealed to the world. Originally, Torah was Hashem's, so to speak, confidant, something that Hashem enjoyed the pleasure of. Like the famous Gemara about the angels protesting Moshe wanting to take the Torah down. They said, but this is Hashem, your special treasure that has always been stored for you alone. So it's not just that we were not ready for Torah. Torah, at that point in time, was completely in, impossible to, to access. It was beyond the world completely, not only the physical, but even the spiritual world. In the the concept of Torah was completely beyond any created entity, even the greatest angels. So therefore, to take people 
and to move them to a place where they could now receive the Torah, it means you have to reconstitute these people completely. Because Torah is not relevant to ordinary people or ordinary aspects of creation, and certainly not to people who are in a spiritually depressed place. So in order to get those people to be ready to receive the Torah, those people have to be radically reconstituted. And that's the secret of the three names of Pesach and in the particular order in which they appear because they describe the process by which somebody is completely reconstituted, by which a person radically changes themselves. And that's why Pesach isn't a history story. It's relevant to us in our lives because the three stages of Pesach, as we're about to learn them, are three stages that we could and should practice in our own lives on a regular basis, at least once a year on Pesach. Okay, so in order to understand this, we need a mushal because very often abstract concepts are too difficult for us to understand, so we relate it to something which we can appreciate. So what we're going to look at is the concept of the teacher-student relationship, not an ordinary teacher-student, but specifically a teacher who has to introduce the student to something which is way beyond what the student is ordinarily comfortable with or able to comprehend. Because remember, we're talking about reconstituting somebody completely, so it's radical teaching that we'll use as the metaphor. So we're going to use the example of a teacher who teaches something to the student which the student of his own accord should never be able to relate to and to understand. This is where a teacher introduces to a student something which is totally radically new. Not just because it's news to the student, but because it's such a deep or profound idea that it is completely over the head of the student. It's not just that the student isn't familiar with the topic. The student isn't actually cut out for this kind of a topic. So the teacher is about to radicalize the experience of the student. That you, you, you're not who you thought you were. You're a whole different kind of student. I'm going to introduce you to things that are going to blow your mind because it's going to shift you as a person. You'll become somebody completely different. So how do you do that? How do you move a person totally out of their comfort zone, totally out of their reality, in order to feed them information that's really going to revolutionize their lives? So there are three things that need to happen. The first thing is the student has to be in the right space. So the student has to be in a state of bittel, which means the student has to be willing to relinquish all preconceptions, all expectations, and be a blank canvas, ready to receive whatever it is you're going to tell. I don't know what you're going to tell me. I'm not going to try and preempt. I'm not trying to guess. I don't know what you're going to say. I'm completely open. Whatever you teach me, I'm going to take. Like the expression of the Gemara, when a Talmud <coughs> sits in front of his teacher, his lips should drip with gall, which implies that he's in such a state of being overwhelmed and overawed by the experience, he's not going to open his mouth, he's not going to offer an opinion, he's not even going to entertain an opinion in his own mind. He's just overawed. Well, okay, let's hear what has to be taught. Similar to Rabbi Eliezer Ben Hurkans, he's described as Boris Such Enim Abetipo. He was like the system that could just receive, receive whatever came his way, and he would never lose a drop. Why? Because he never corrupted the information he was learning with his own perspective and his own views. So that's step number one. The student has to sit there absolutely open. I don't know what to expect. Whatever you give me, I'll just take it. Why do we need this? Because 
because this student, as he is, if he hangs on to his self, his ego, his mind, his understanding, his perceptions, none of them is geared to be able to receive this information. So it's Dafka by emptying himself of all his pre-existing knowledge, his preconceptions, his expectations, empty it all out. Now you become, like the Chazal say, an empty vessel. Well, an empty vessel can always receive something new, whereas something that is already filled will cause everything else, whatever new comes in, to spill out. So that's step one. Step one is that the student has to be in a state of incredible bittle to say, I am ready to learn without any bias. But it can't stop at that point. So step number two. It's not good enough just to sit there and take in the information because the minute the class is over, you now have to assimilate this information into your mind. You have to actually get it. You have to own it. It has to become yours. It has to be something that you truly understand. So as important as it is to be a blank page while the teacher is teaching, it is equally important straight after the teacher finishes teaching to grasp it yourself, to talk it over in your own mind and say, what did I just learn? What does it just mean? How do I relate to it? So it's all very well to say that an empty vessel can contain, but it has to be a whole vessel, meaning say it can't have leaks. <laughs> kind of a, a mind that leaks out the information, right? Right, all the halachas about how large a hole would be would disqualify a vessel from being considered a vessel. Which means that in addition to the fact that the student has to sit there with complete openness, the student also has to be sure to activate his brain before the class starts, because he's going to need to absorb the information and understand it and assimilate it and own it. So to sit there as a blank canvas does not mean to sit there with a blank stare. It means to sit there with an open mind, but an active mind nonetheless. So that's stage two. And then, stage three is, The ultimate state is that the student masters the information to such an extent that he really understands things aligned with how his teacher understands. Even though, of course, when the student starts out, he's way away, a long, long way from understanding things in the language or perspective of his teacher. That's why the teacher has to tone down in the beginning what he's teaching because he can't overwhelm the student. He's got to speak the language that the student can relate to. And of course, the full perspective that the teacher has remains mostly hidden during the course of the initial classes because if I had to share all of that information with the student, the student might not be able to understand it. However, what is incredibly important for the student is, yes, the student has to be a blank canvas, ready to hear. Yes, the student has to make sure that his mind is active. And what he also needs to do is to be prepared to step into another reality that he doesn't yet understand. He doesn't even know how to identify if it was in front of his mind. But he has to be, he has to be ready for this. He has to be ready to say, I'm going to go into a journey that's going to transform me completely to the point that I'm going to see the world differently. 
Yeah, I have to be ready to elevate my intellect into a different realm, which is the realm of the intellect of the teacher. So it's only if I take that approach and I realize, okay, I'm ready. I want to not just learn. I don't just want to gain information, but I want to start to think like the teacher thinks. That's actually what I'm looking for in this, in this process. So that opens a person up to a whole different technology of intellect to what they were used to. Okay, so there's three steps. Step number one is surrender my preconceptions so I can learn. Step number two is make sure that I don't surrender my brain so I can learn. Step number three is to have a willingness to explore a world that I don't understand and don't begin to know how to identify, the world of the teacher, so that, please God, at the end of this, I can actually live in that world. Now, the truth is that if you have a look at the order in which this has all been presented, there may be other places in Gomorrah that speak a slightly different language and seem to indicate that this is not actually the way that we should do things. So what's the Seder that we said? The way that we've proposed this order is that first a person has actually been in a state of being completely overwhelmed, almost like broken. The, the lips dripping with gall implies somebody who is completely unseated from their comfort zone. And then the person becomes a Kaili. It's phase two, that I should be the ready vessel to be able to absorb this information and own it and understand it properly. Now that order seems to contradict something else that the Gemara says elsewhere, and which actually makes a lot of sense. We're going to see that the Rambam talks about it as well. Isipi Gemara, the Gemara tells us, Rabbo, who was the greatest sage of the time, when he used to teach his students, first he would tell them something of a light-hearted nature, and that would cause them to laugh. And then he'd begin the shiru, and it says, Yosef Amosah. Then he would sit with a sense of awe that is appropriate to Torah learning, and he'd begin the shiru. Now that sounds like the exact opposite order to how we presented it, right? We said, first you have to sit in awe, then you start to become more confident as you learn and own the information. Here it seems to say, first create a rapport and a sense of connection and maybe even a sense of confidence. And only after that can you come with a heavy-duty sense of awe as you sit and learn your Torah. It appears from the order of how Rabbi did things that first he wanted to turn the students into Kalim, where they could actually hear what it is that he had to say. And only after that introduced the notion of Bittal. And we said the opposite. We said, first you have to have Bittal, and then you become a Kaili ready to learn. So which one is it? What we're going to explain is that there is an overarching approach that you have to take to learning. And that's what Rabba's light-hearted comments are meant to represent. And what we were describing is once the learning process actually begins. The idea of Rabbi sharing this light-hearted thought before, because the Gemara does say that, before he would begin to teach, that's a generalized preparation before the learning process could begin. In other words, you have to connect with your audience, and then the learning process could begin. But this is just an introduction to the study. It's not the actual learning itself, because the learning itself has these three phases which we have begun to explain. 
putting it into different words. That light-hearted comment that Rabbi would use, that's not what's going to turn the, the student into somebody who can receive, who can understand, who can appreciate the teaching. All that it achieves is that it gets the person to want to learn, that the person wants to become a keli. The joke, so to speak, doesn't turn the person into a student who is a keli to receive. It just means that the person now wants to be able to receive. But the real teacher-student relationship and all of the depth and development that's going to happen through that relationship, that only occurs after the student sits there in a state of bittel. Now I'm ready to learn. In other words, there's an introduction to make you want to learn, and then there's a process of what happens in order to learn. The introduction, very warm, encompassing, embracing, inviting. The learning process, you need to have bitul in order to begin it. Based on that, we can also understand a statement that the Gemara makes. Interestingly enough, it's a statement after the story of Elisha and Gehazi, where Elisha pushed Gehazi away after the way that he had behaved, and he kind of dismissed him from being his, his assistant. So the, ter- the Gemara tells us you should always be careful that you draw close with the right stronger hand and you only push people away with the left weaker hand. The mashma. So it implies from the way that it says, that the way that it says it, first it says small doiche, that you push away with the left hand, and then it says you mean mikorevis, that you bring close to the right hand. So it actually sounds like the Gemara is in, in fact saying, first thing to do is the pushing away part, the bittel part, and only afterwards the yamin mikorevis, the making a keili part. And the only thing the Gemara really seems to emphasize over here is use the weaker hand for the pushing away. But it still says, first there's this element of distance, and only then is there an element of closeness, which is exactly how we describe the learning process. So maybe here we could ask a similar question. How do we connect and relate this principle that first you have the distance and then you have the closeness with, how do you reconcile that with the teaching of Rabbah where first you share the words of encouragement or light-heartedness and only afterwards you start to learn with that overwhelming sense of bitul? Besides the fact, obviously, that throughout all halachic issues, we always prioritize the right-hand side, and we always do things with the right first. So why now have we switched it around? Are we doing something with the left first? And, and, and it's even more difficult to understand when you put it into context, because straight after the Gemara tells us the general principle, which is that you should first distance with the left hand and then draw close to the right hand, then it says, that when you deal with your own Yetzirah, when you deal with a woman, when you deal with a child, you first distance with the left hand and then you draw close to the right hand. Now, 
how does this work? You're saying that first we distance a child? We know that the basics of education are that first you draw a child close and you, you attract the child with things that the child would appreciate and, and, and would like. For example, like the Rambam says, read this piece of Torah and I will give you nuts. I guess in those days those were the treats. Like the Rambam says in great detail. So now which one is it? Is the idea to draw somebody close, like Rabbi did, with the light-hearted comment, or like the Rambam suggests in Chinuch, that you offer children things that will attract them, and only later when they mature, then you can start to talk about you know, how you break it down into uh, a bittle and commitment and so forth. How do you reconcile that with what we have said, which is that the first state of a student has to be a state of bittle? And logically, it would appear that you definitely, in the context of a child, first have to draw the child close before you push the child away. As we see in practice, any educator will tell you this. That if you try too hard to push a child away early on in the educational process, you'll achieve exactly that. You'll push the child away, and they'll never come back. But based on the way that we explain it, that there's a distinction between what is the introduction before the learning process happens and then the stages of how the learning process happens, then it makes sense. When it tells us first you distance with the left and then you draw close with the right, that's talking about how you actually engage with and influence another person in practice. So as we've already described, when the person is engaged in that space, when they're already sitting as a student, the first thing we require is the element of bitul, and only after that do we have the element of drawing close. But we haven't discussed in the Seder what happens before you get into that stage, into that connection, into that engagement. There's an introductory phase, and for sure the introductory phase is warm and embracing. Candies to the kids and jokes to the adults. Now let's learn. Ah, once we're learning, if you really want to have a meaningful experience of learning, these are the three stages. The first stage, absolute bittle. Be willing to be open to whatever has to be taught to you, even if it's uncomfortable or outside of your current reality. Now in the same way, remember this was all a moshal. So in the same way as in order for a person to learn new information that is completely beyond anything they've understood or learned before, we need these three steps. Now if that is true about gaining new insight and information that you need these three stages, how much more so must it be true if we're talking about becoming a new individual, not just learning something new, but becoming someone new, for sure you're going to need these three stages. So the same thing is going to apply to us when we talk about the birth of the Jewish people to become this Jewish nation. Where Yitzhak Mitzrayim would culminate in this incredible moment of receiving the Torah and serving Hashem on Har Sinai, which would completely transform them into a new type of people. So the Yidden had to undergo these three in critical phases. 
Aleph, phase number one. Kedei shebnei sol yuchulu kabla satayra nidish mehem tavdum. In order for the Yidden to be able to receive Torah, which is the goal of Yitzias Mitzrayim, they needed ta'avdun, the willingness, the preparation to serve, to work. They had to work on themselves, as we know they did through the course of the seven weeks, counting up to Shavuos. They had to work on themselves, work to lose who they used to be. Because remember, who they used to be was antithetical to Torah. 49 levels of impurity. That does not put you in a position at all to be able to receive Torah. So they had to completely shed that exoskeleton of who they had been previously. This tremendous bitl. The expression that the Torah uses, that Hashem says to Moshe, they're going to serve me like an Eved. What's an Eved? An Eved doesn't have a personal agenda. A slave doesn't have an identity per se. The whole reality of the slave is only doing what is expected of him. Which is exactly what the Jewish people had to do in order to receive the Torah. You have to be willing to say, That's bitl. That is the first stage of all learning. We're ready. We'll do exactly what it is that you want. Phase 2, though, on the other hand. And this is a, a very fine line. This idea of ta'avdun, of working to lose my old identity, working to do what Hashem says with absolute dedication, does not mean I break everything about myself. So the truth is that when we talk about us becoming one with Torah, dedicating ourselves with Torah, it's not really shedding who we are. It's shedding the exoskeleton to discover who we are and to discover that we actually are one with Torah. Rabbi Akiva's famous example, when they said, stop learning Torah, he said, we're like fish and water. You know, you, can, you, you cannot divide between us. Or like the opinion, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel's opinion, that a fish is not a chatzitza, it's not a barrier between a person who's immersing in the mikveh of, let's say, a lake, and there's a fish, the fish is not in the way. Like the Mishnah Prikyavah says, that nobody is free except when they learn Torah. How can you say that Torah makes you free? Torah puts so many responsibilities onto you. There are so many expectations. How could that be liberating? Because that is our nature and that is our truth to study Torah and do mitzvahs is who we are. As the Mishnah in Kiddushin says, I was only created to serve Hashem. That is what it's all about. So on the one hand, I have to have absolute bitl of, who, of losing who I thought I was so that I can become a keli phase two, a keli, a vessel to receive Torah, which is actually the most normal and natural thing that I have because of my neshama. The Rebbe is going to say such a powerful thing now about how to look at an individual who is not engaged with Torah mitzvahs. So if a person is not doing Torah mitzvahs, even though the person feels I'm free, I have no responsibility, I have no yoke, nobody's telling me what to do. So the person believes that they are fry, that they are free. And the person thinks, you know, it's so much easier to live this way without having to worry about all the expectations of Judaism. 
the reality, whether the person realizes it or not, the reality is that a Jewish person who lives in contrast to what the Torah wants is carrying the worst weight on them because they're not living resonant with who they are. They feel comfortable. Uh, you know, many times people feel comfortable while doing unhealthy things. They feel comfortable, but they're at odds with their, se- with their true self. Like the Gemara tells us that the slavery of Mitzrayim was when women were doing men's work, but more interestingly is men doing women's work. Surely women's work was easier than the slavery of building cities in Egypt. So what's so bad about that? Because Nevertheless, it's considered back-breaking labor because it's so unnatural. And that's exactly the case for a Jewish person. A Jewish person who's not doing what Hashem wants, it is so unnatural, it's going to cause them a tremendous amount of angst and stress, and they won't know where it's coming from. And they might develop various neuroses because of it, and they won't understand where it's coming from. So Dafka, when a person is willing to subjugate themselves to what the Torah expects, that they actually become liberated. So this is fascinating. What are we saying? The first step of the growth of the Jewish people then historically, which of course is the first step of each of us growing, is Bittel. I have to let go of who I used to believe that I was, a person with an ego, a person with an agenda, a person who used to enjoy certain things that I believed I can never give up or whatever it is. Second phase is to recognize that I am a Kaylee to receive Torah, not just because I'm going to work on myself and learn certain methods to align myself with Torah. It's because who I, that's who I really am. <clears throat> and if I don't recognize this part of myself, I'm the greatest slave that exists. Then, we said that the final stage is where the student reaches a perspective that he can think and see like the teacher. And at Matan Torah, that's really what happened to the Jewish people. We were re- totally, radically transformed. We were transformed to a point that even when a Jewish person does things, which obviously you can only do to the extent of human abilities, so I have all my limitations, we enter the world of the teacher, the world of the the world of infinite God. So my little bit of Torah learning that I do, and my few mitzvahs that I do, they all have infinite value because I step into Hashem's world. Now we understand the three names of Pesach because they represent these three critical stages in the transformation of the B'nai Yisrael to become the Jewish people and the transformation each of us should experience in our lives. We know very well that Matzah is the icon of Bittel because it's so flat, it's so uh, void of any sense of personal inflation or ego. Cheros, the sense of liberation and freedom, that relates to what we've just said. When a person recognizes that I'm most liberated because I'm now living my truth. So even though it has many responsibilities, I feel great because this is who I am. And Pesach, as we know, means to jump, to leap, to move in an unexpected fashion. Now, 
which of course represents not just the fact that Hashem skipped over the houses of the Jewish people when he killed the firstborns, but that there was this massive leap that the Jews made at the time of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and more so at the time of the giving of the Torah, this movement of the Jewish people out of, the, out of their reality has created people into Hashem's reality of the Creator, which is completely beyond any kind of limitation. So, Chagamatzos, the first step, Bittel, willingness to accept, Zman Chayrusena, the liberation of discovering that to be a Kali for Torah is actually what life is all about. Chag Pesach, to leap beyond my reality and enter into Hashem's reality through Torah mitzvahs. Achas Hayroyis Mizabah Betis Hashem Shekolech on Mizroel. And then this is going to give us a very practical take home message. The Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, Reishis Avoid of Ikhva Shosha, Hiyirva Kabola Sel Avoid Asevad. The Alter Rebbe says clearly that the beginning of all service of Hashem is. Yiras Hashem, to be in awe of Hashem and Kabbalah's soul, complete acceptance of what Hashem wants, to behave like a dedicated slave. But we're certainly not to, not to walk around feeling overwhelmed and so heavy and depressed because we've got such a big load of being an Eve to Hashem and to be in fear and live fearful. That's not the idea at all. Except Alter says, if a person behaved in such a way so as to create some kind of a barrier between themselves and Hashem, then yes, then the person would have to go through a, a, a very focused program of appropriate atzvos, not depression, but feeling sad, and more important, feeling merirus, feeling bitter, remorse and regret, so they'd break through that barrier. But by and large, generally speaking, a person is not supposed to walk around feeling down. Because the nature of Kedusha is that nothing breaks in Kedusha, as we're going to see from a great story, well-known story of the Alter Rebbe. The only time that a person ever needs to deal with things like feeling broken, depressed, down, upset, remorseful, it's only when you're dealing with issues that relate to the animal soul and to the human body, the physical dimension of a person. Sometimes that gets the upper hand. Sometimes my materialistic side controls me. And then I have to really have that sense of pain and loss so that I can break the chokehold of my nefesh abahamis. But if I'm operating from a perspective of my neshama, then everything is positive, everything is joyous, and there certainly is no breakage. Which explains the well-known story of the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe used to have a silver holder for tobacco that did not have a, a, a cover on it. The top was very shiny, so the Alter Rebbe had removed it to use as a mirror to ensure that his Shoroish Tefillin were always in the correct place. So somebody once shared the deta- details of the story in front of the Tzemach Tzedek. So he mentioned that the, the Alter Rebbe broke off the, the lid. Says, My grandfather never, his whole concept in life, his entire approach to life was never to break anything. He said, There's no question that there must have been some little kind of a peg or, or some kind of a pin 
that sat inside the hinge between the top and bottom of the snuff box. And he must have removed the hinge. But he didn't break anything, that's for sure. So the question of the story is, what's the big deal if the altar had broken off the lid? Obviously his intention would not have been malicious. His intention would have been, now I can use a mirror to fulfill a mitzvah. Great. Should be very positive. What's the difference? The ends should, ju- should justify the means. wanted to imply that when there is Kedusha, there is no possibility, there's no concept of breaking. Kedusha doesn't break. Kedusha only builds. So therefore, to the Tzemach Tzedek, it was absolutely clear as day that the Alter Rebbe would never have broken something because the Alter Rebbe lived in the world of Kedusha. So therefore, the fact that I, as a Jewish person, every one of us, has to have Bittu and Dira Shamayim and Kabbalah Sol at the beginning of our spiritual process, after we've rid ourselves of the influences of the Nefesh Bahamis, so now we're talking Nefesh Elikis, and the Nefesh Elikis has to start off with Kabbalah Sol, as we've described when you sit down to learn, it's with this tremendous Bittu. The Bittu itself has to be pleasurable, and enthusiastic. By recognizing that this bittle is the real me and it is the real freedom that I have. Pesach, the holiday of freedom, is the holiday of bittle, of complete dedication to Hashem because we recognize that my openness to accept whatever Hashem sends me and my dedication to do whatever Hashem wants, that's what's going to bring me to the most meaningful, deep, personal kind of liberation that a person could ever hope for. Mitzah Hashem should have the ultimate Cheros with Moshiach now.